1: done enough for Joe in our house. We were thankful that we had him for the couple of weeks that we had him. When you hear people saying, ah, they get over it, and this and that, not when they are it, they don't get over it. So we cared for Joe in our home. We washed them. We gave him baths. We shaved them. We weren't afraid to put our hands on our son because we loved our son and we still love our son. There was no stress, there was no rattles,
2: there was absolute. This is why, the shock of it, that I can't accept that. I don't... I just couldn't believe that he had died because I was waiting for all these signs because I had seen people dying and I knew what it was, the stress, and there was absolutely nothing. And that only thing that keeps me going, the way he died, I believe, our son went straight to heaven.
3: Our aim is to help each patient, not only to die peacefully, but to live with dignity until he dies, and for the family to go on living afterwards.
4: I wouldn't have any hesitation in saying that it's it's being at home that makes it life worth living.
5: The last memories would be of a boy who was holding on to life with all the fiber that he could muster.
6: People are always asking, You know, what is the good death? What does dying with dignity mean? Dying with dignity means dying in character. I think this is wonderful because I don't think any man or woman should change their personality or their lifestyle or who they are when they come to die. Because dying is an act of life. It's just one of the acts along the way in your life. And I think this is very important for families to know because sometimes families can be very protective towards the dying person and can try and set up a kind of an ideal environment for the dying person. And very, very often I'm having to say to people, give him room, give her space.
7: That dying in character with as normal a lifestyle as possible that Christy Canelli talks about is very much the hinge on which the hospice home care service functions. Christy Canelli trains carers in communication skills. He specialises in the terminally ill. The symptom control unit set up by the hospice in the mid-70s enabled the symptoms associated with cancer to be controlled. The home care unit, established a decade later, was a natural progression. This made it possible for people who were dying to be cared for by their families in their own homes. Sister Ignatius is director of the home care team.
3: We're a symptom control team, aiming to keep patients comfortable in order to live the last period of their lives to the full. We do not treat the patient in isolation, but the family unit as a whole. We try to cope with their emotional and psychological feelings. And we help the family in their care and the support of their loved one. We encourage the patient, once symptoms are controlled, to be in charge. And sometimes that isn't easy to get the family to draw back. They've been so used to looking after their loved one that they just can't believe they're feeling so much better and they're able to get up and perhaps wash the dishes or go for a walk or whatever. So we encourage the patient, once symptoms are controlled, to be in charge and to have a quality of living. We aim that they can set, at them setting realistic goals. Now they can be very simple goals, such as going for a walk in the garden or perhaps around the block, or perhaps going to the local for a pint, or maybe going further afield, going out to dinner, or going away for a weekend. We've had quite a number of patients who have been able to go for holidays, not only in Ireland, even to Spain, and
7: enjoy themselves to the full. People who have cancer may suffer from breathlessness, nausea, dizziness, and of course, pain removing pain and the fear of it is an integral part of the home care service, as medical director Dr. Veroni Hanley explains
8: When people with cancer first hear about their, their condition, actually they 're very frightened and fearful, and as are, are their families and I think um, one of the biggest fears that they have is is the fear that because they have cancer, that they will have pain uh, in most people's. Uh, minds uh, pain and cancer are are synonymous they just go together and that needn't necessarily be the situation at all um, because pain isn't always present to begin with uh, if a person has cancer um, many many people live with their cancer and if cancer is the cause of their death they, they die without experience pain at all but when pain is there when pain is part of the disease um, it's it's heartening and comforting to know that any pain um, can be controlled. Because the patient is going
3: through a sense, perhaps, of isolation. Depression. A feeling of loneliness. I may not be able to discuss that with their loved ones, because they don't want to worry them. So that we bring all these qualities of a living relationship to enable that person to feel safe, secure, and confident in the knowledge that we have taken all that and placed it on our own shoulders, all these problems, all these worries.
8: Pain isn't always a physical thing. We must always appreciate and understand that because part of pain um, is the emotional part of pain. It's the fear of pain. So we have to appreciate that when we're undertaking the management of pain. But to deal with physical pain, there are many medications. Um, Prime amongst those are narcotic drugs or morphine. And properly used... And individually um, managed, uh, people can uh, take the appropriate amount of morphine and live very well. Um, it's like a person having diabetes, uh, they need insulin to control their diabetes in order to live fully. Likewise, when a person has pain, they need their morphine uh, to take their pain away in order that, can, that they can live very fully. So people needn't be afraid that of morphine, or that by taking morphine their mental state will be interfered with, that they will become drowsy or confused. That isn't so. Um, Morphine takes away the pain and allows them to live very well, mentally alert and, and as full of life as their disease will allow them to be.
6: I think there's a great sort of protective instinct in all of us towards those we love. I think this makes us highly protective of our children it also makes us highly protective towards our loved ones who are terminally ill. Uh, I remember when my own father was terminally ill and now I'm supposed to know something about this area but he took me out for a walk at one stage and it was just the day my son had been christened and as we walked around the block he said to me isn't it a funny old world you know there's your fella coming and me going and I turned on him straight away and I said to him there's plenty room for the two of you and don't be talking like that and you see, I no more than anybody else, I don't want my father to die. I don't want to let him go. And part of our bereavement starts, I think, there and then, when we begin to realise that the rock is wearing. And it's, it's a growth process for ourselves too. It's coming to terms with the fact that, yes, they are going to leave us, and to give them the freedom and the room to do it the way they want to do it, and to allow them to take control of their own dying in as much now as they can. So that, again, we don't kidnap them, and we don't take responsibility away from them, and we don't make them, in a sense, dependent upon us. That they have the freedom, and I remember my dad felt that he had the freedom to sit down and tell us where he wanted to be buried, and the basic arrangements that he would like to have. And in lots of ways, he gave us the freedom to grow through his dying and he created the kind of environment within the house where we could laugh or we could cry or we could just be ourselves and many people are afraid that if their if their loved one knows that this is a terminal illness that The time remaining will be terrible, that everybody will be in bad form and that the only thing to talk about will be death. In fact, quite the opposite was our uh, experience. In fact, it, it liberated us and it gave us the freedom, as they say, to talk about nothing at length and to have the old crack and the laugh and at times, if we wanted it, to have the cry. But there was no hidden agenda. There were no barriers put up, there was no strain. We didn't have to act when we went into the room. He didn't have to act for our sakes as well. And I remember a line from Shakespeare where uh, Malcolm, the young king, says about a man who has just died, he said, nothing in his life became him like the leaving of it. And I could certainly say that one of the great things my father did in his dying was teach us how to live.
8: Given a choice, I think most people would choose to stay at home to die. Um, thinking of my own situation, I remember my mother, she died from lung cancer. The end was coming, and she knew that. And in those days, people went to hospital to die, and I can vividly and clearly remember her going around uh, to all of the rooms and recollecting all of the things that happened and going through the the memories, the sweet ones and the not-so-sweet ones, and for me it was as heartbreaking as it must have been for her. Um, I think that certainly did encourage me and stimulate me in my younger days to want more so that people could get as much care from a medical point of view as much as from a nursing point of view to allow them to stay in their own comfortable final ho- home surroundings so that they don't have to make that final break and that death slips upon them rather than they having to say their last goodbyes to die.
4: I wouldn't have any hesitation in saying that it's it's being at home that makes it life worth living.
7: Martin Ronan took early retirement five years ago from the civil service. On the 7th of June last, he had an operation to remove a cancerous tumour from his upper spine. Since then, his lower body has been paralysed. Three months later, he was discharged home from the rehabilitation centre with a bed, a hoist and a wheelchair. A few days later, the hospice home care team moved in. Martin's symptoms were assessed. Then in consultation with his GP, his nausea, breathlessness and coughing was controlled. He is being cared for at home by his wife Eva and daughter Mary. There's a great atmosphere in the Ronan household. There's a lot of laughter, a lot of joshing and a lot of caring. Talking directly to her husband, Eva remembers the
9: dark days. Well, first of all, after you had your operation and we were told that you were paralysed, we felt devastated. We were wondering how you'd manage at all. And we've most of all, we felt for you, because the shock of it must have been terrible altogether to to cope and to feel so helpless um when you went into St Luke's, then I went in and I saw you in this rotating bed, and i I felt, oh gosh, we won't ever be able to manage it all after that then we, we, you were sent to the rehab, and um it was it wasn't quite so bad. But it it, it you were, it was awful to see you so helpless, having to be turned ever so often, so that um, the bed sores would heal up. Then when we I knew then that you you would like to come home, but we were worried that would we be able to cope um, yeah. when you'd come home, as regards turning you and dressing you and everything. But thanks be to God. Managed.
4: At the moment, I haven't, I haven't any hope of being able to walk again. A miracle may happen at any time, but medically, I'm, uh, and from what I have gathered from the surgeon, that uh, it's the, the movement is not going to come back. Uh, and the only time that I that I can walk now is is when I'm asleep, is at night time. I'm always up and about at night, and uh, I go all kinds of places. And at the back of my mind, even in the dreams, I have a feeling that I shouldn't be there. But it's only when I wake up in the morning that I realise that things are the same as they have been. I
9: get up about, about 9 o'clock in the morning, and we tidy up a bit. And then the nurse comes to help us to get Martin dressed, washed and dressed. And sometimes we get him and put him in the chair. Lately now he's inclined to be feeling a bit sick when he'd get up. So we, we leave him lying on for a while. And um, Mary, my daughter, is around and we get him up then at his own pace. And he's better able to cope then because he's inclined to get a bit sick if you get him up too quickly, you know. So um, after that, then we kind of coax him as to what he'd like to eat, and uh, he's a great fish man, and he's very particular. We have to get really fresh fish, or we're sacked. Now he'd tell us if 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 it's not fresh, so we have to be very very careful um, not to bring home any fresh fish that isn't fresh.
6: I'm
4: an expert potato peeler. I uh, I can I can take off the least amount of. Of skin off a potato, of anybody that I know, and if uh, if it was a sport, I would have else I claim, but um, I I I um, one way that I can be helpful, at home is by taking a huge basin of washed potatoes onto my knees, and uh, getting getting onto the job of peeling them, and uh, I uh, I do that with great thoroughness, and I drop them into the bucket of water. And this time of the year, they keep for quite a long time peeled. It doesn't do them any harm, but um, it's quite useful. And if I know that I'm being, um, I'm being inveigled into the job of peeling potatoes for, if not for the neighbours, at least me, my sons who are living away from home. <laughs> that a, it's a, it's a help. I can clean carrots and parsnips too. With with some efficiency, and uh, it's time and again when uh, there is a need for 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 chips that having to, having the potatoes ready peeled is is a great help. Just to take them out and dry them and and, and chip them uh, saves the it's, it saves the, the need to start off washing and peeling, which certainly takes up the greater part of the time in the business of, of, of making chips.
9: The first thing in the morning after he has been uh, dressed and washed, washed and dressed, is that he demands that he has his times. And not alone does he read it, but he, he tells me all the news about, I that I don't even have to read the times. <laughs> but I will say one thing about Martin, that any time, at any time, Never have I seen him in bad humor. That he is a wonderful person altogether. That he has taken it, everything so placidly. I know if it was me, I wouldn't have been able for it, what he has gone through.
4: Before I got ill, Mary had ordered the rug plants uh, materials and she had started a, a handmade rug or a rug, which is intended to be a handmade rug when it's finished. But um, I, uh, I'm, I'm uh, intending every day to, to start, on the, because it's very sort of work for me. I, it means just sitting at the table, uh, stitching in one stitch after another with the head of a, of a, a little, what do you call it, uh, a hook.
10: Well, when Daddy came home in September um it w- it was great because it was just like having them back like before, and um then at Christmas time, everybody was here, and it didn't mean that we had to go out to hospital or it was just having everyone together and um it's it makes all the difference but um apart from Daddy' being a real chatty person tell you to be able to tell you all about history and about what's on the paper and the news of the day and jokes be up sometimes. Before we got the Pegasus mattress, and I had to get up early hours in the morning to turn him and he'd have a different joke or a story or something to say. And um, also the fact that he still writes the checks for all the different bills coming in. So, like, it's as if he's, it's just the same as before, being home again. And um, you you forget of, of him being paralysed and you just take him as a person and not of, of
7: his illness. Another man who was cared for at home and eventually died was Joe Carthy. He was 29 years of age and had AIDS.
2: His brother used to be up there sitting with him and he told his brother what he wanted, he, that he wanted to die, only with me and his dad and his brother. They're just the four of us. And the house was always full, people were coming and going all the time, all his friends coming in and out to him, and he, um, he'd choose that night. He, the house was empty from half, about quarter to 11. And a quarter past 11, he died. He'd choose that time when he knew it was only us there. And people say, like, you know, God had... But we were the lucky ones in the end, because had he been in hospital, we wouldn't have experienced what we did. We were able to tell one another we loved one another. He told us he was sorry for all he had done, and the trouble he had given us, which he hadn't. And... We were able to tell him we loved him. And we had the pleasure of being in my arms, telling us he loved us, and seeing his spirit, leaving his body, and going out the window. We were waiting on stress, and there was nothing. He got the most beautiful death that I've ever seen, I've ever
1: experienced. We never knew that Joseph would contact HIV. Joseph was was a loving boy. He was full of life. He went out. he enjoyed himself, he brought friends to our house, they enjoyed us out in the house, having tea, and just having a bit of a laugh between us all. But Joe was special. In Joe's name, Joseph, it goes, J, he was jolly, O, he was optimistic, S, he was sociable, E, he was electrified he was popular and H he was happy so what more can I say about Joe that was Joe to us
2: Joe was he was just an average ordinary child playing around doing things everyone else done he was always at me back he was always with his ma everywhere I went Joe was there with me we were very snug we thought we were an average family I have another son There was just the four of us. And then my son got married. We had Joe there all the time. Joe went away to London. When he was about 19, he came back. After a while, he used to be ringing me and saying he was lonely. He missed us and he missed our granddaughter. And so he came home and he was here and he was walking here and he was walking there. Joe was a very colorful person. He loved life. He loved jewellery. He was never in. He went out and when you saw him, that was it. You saw him. I didn't know he was sick. I didn't know this was going to happen to us, and um, he never told us.
1: When we found out about Joe, using James's hospital, and the doctor could do no more for him, so we took him home to care for him in the house. We did care for him. We'd done enough for Joe in our house. We were thankful that we had him for the couple of weeks that we had him. When you hear people saying, ah, they get over it and this and that, not when they are dying, they don't get over it. So we cared for Joe and our home. We washed them. We gave him baths. We shaved them. We weren't afraid to put our hands on our son because we loved our son and we still love our son. So oh. dying, Joe... Died. and it's in the, the Bible, you are born to die. So when you are dying, that is still over your head. We can't get away from that. We all have to die some way or another. No matter what way we die, we'll die.
2: Just eight days before he died, we got the nurse in, and she was fantastic. She was very, very good, though he dreaded to see her. He used to know that she'd be making him clean his teeth. And you know? I used to push him to do that because I knew he wasn't well. I used to lie in the bedroom at night. He'd be in his bed and I'd be outside of his covers and I'd have a duvet over and his dad'd be in the rocking chair. And that's the way the three of us slept two weeks before he died. We slept that way every night.
7: The day Joe died, Teresa, the district nurse, visited him in the morning. She called back again at lunchtime and suggested that it might be advisable to get a night nurse.
2: I think Joe realised then um, that it was finished. Joe wouldn't have wanted night nurses coming into him, or anything. So Teresa was going down the stairs, and she said, "I'll see you later, Joe." He says, "Please God, you won't." So she says to me, "Joe was giving up the fight. So he was kind of um, in a, 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 not a coma, such, but he was asleep, and he was, uh, uh, you know."
7: The day passed slowly for the Carthys. Joe's mother watched out for the nurse from the sitting room. When she came back upstairs, she found that Joe had quietened down.
2: And this noise he was making, like, you know, moaning, was gone. I said, Oh God, thank God he's asleep. He's in a deep sleep, you see. So my son said, Go down, man, make the supper, have everything ready for the nurse. So I went back out on the road, and next she came in, and I says to her, You can't go up with that uniform on you. So she says, I'll just go and have a look at him. And I walked in. She walked into the bedroom with us, and I just looked at my Joe, and I knew he was drawing his last breaths. So the nurse said, kneel down. And I just walked over, and I just took Joe in my arms. And I was saying, the prayer to the sacred heart that I'd always said for a and a blessed lady. So I just took him in my arms, and he looked up at me, and he just mouthed that he loved me. He said, I love he just melted it, you know. And with that, he just gave the tree size. And it was absolutely beautiful. We actually felt, saw his spirit leaving his body and going out the window. There was no stress. There was no rattles. There was absolute. this is why, the shock of it, that I can't accept that. I don't, I just couldn't believe that he had died because I was waiting for all these signs because I had seen people dying. And I knew where it was, distress, the and there was absolutely nothing. And that only thing that keeps me going. The way he died, I believe, our son went straight to heaven.
7: The Hartnett son Peter was seven years old when he died at home of cystic fibrosis.
11: The night of his death, the early mo- well, right through the night, the early morning. The last few hours of his life. About an hour before he died, he called out, Mommy, Mommy, and later I felt that hope that one of those mummies was calling on his Blessed Mother, on our Blessed Mother, who whom he loved very much. And I do believe that at the moment of death, that the room must have been filled with dozens of angels and and all the saints that, that he loved.
7: John Hartnett remembers his son's death more as a holding on to life than as a gentle going.
5: The last memories would be of a boy who was holding on to life with all the fibre that he could muster. And so I'd get a couple of hours sleep at 3 o'clock in the morning, to then be called at five o'clock by Yvonne telling me that she didn't think Peter was going to pull through. And to then put my hand beside his heart to feel that the heartbeat had in fact changed and that our little boy who for a long time had had a heart which was racing, now had a heart which was beating softly and a gaze in Peter's eyes which was saying, that he couldn't really fight for much longer.
11: And so it was a very unreal time for us. Hard to believe that Peter in my arms was, this lifeless body was, was the little boy that, um, that was so full of life and that he was always trying to get us Going when he must have seen us looking so miserable sometimes which I'm sure we did we tried to hide it from him that when we were talking about his illness we wouldn't talk in his presence in a a miserable sort of way but I'm sure he must have seen our faces but he'd always be saying um, come on let's do something or let's have a cup of tea or uh, what should we do today and he, he, he rarely Gave in to the illness, which really, in the last few weeks, anyway, must have caused him a tremendous amount of suffering, which we would never, have, we would never realise. We will never know what suffering he had, because he certainly never complained.
5: When Peter was here in the front room after he had died. Um, it wasn't It wasn't for me a case of him, him being dead and gone, but a case of, of feeling that I'd come into the room and quite possibly Peter would sit up very quietly, as he would sometimes when he wasn't well, and you'd say to him, how are you, and he'd say, I'm fine, and I could see him sitting up and saying, hello, Daddy. And I'd say, uh, whatever, and he'd say, yeah. I'm fine.
11: we wanted to make sure that we were making the right decision by keeping Peter at home in fact the a week and a half before he died when he had a hospital appointment and John went in with Peter it was actually the feast of the whole it was the feast of all saints in fact it was John Patrick's birthday his brother's birthday and uh, John had to go into the hospital with a cylinder which was a dangerous thing to do but we had no uh, option really and uh, we had decided at that point, knowing that on seeing Peter, that the the doctor would be saying, "This child um, is very ill and needs to be in hospital." They were already aware that we preferred to have Peter at home, and we had we'd made a decision that unless. Um, Unless they could do more for Peter, we would prefer to have him at home. In the last few days um, of his life, I wanted to check again just to make sure that we were doing the right thing by keeping Peter at home. Because he was happy at home. He loved being at home. And although the hospital was great and, and they did all they could, they, they did all they possibly could to to help him all through the years... Um, he preferred to be at home so I rang them to say are we have we made the right decision is there any more you can do for Peter and we were told no um, there's nothing more we can do for him Um, you're doing all you can and if you prefer for him to be at home then that's fine with us there's nothing more we can do though if at any stage you would like to have him in hospital we we obviously would take him on, but there's nothing more that we can do for him. So we were happy enough then to keep him at home, and he was delighted to be at home, I know. So it was a lovely week, really, the last week of his life. A strange week, but I think he enjoyed it. It's hard to know in what ways he enjoyed it but we, we we did everything for him we anything that he wanted we would get for him he, he any video that he wanted to see he liked to see the world cup um video and he loved to hear the um ole ole song uh, on the tape over and over and over again he loved that
5: in the um, last days that Peter had with us, which we didn't know were his last days, but days of intensive care. Um, Life centred around having enough oxygen um, for Peter and seeing that he was able to get enough oxygen from the canisters without turning the pressure up too high. John Patrick, his brother, was
11: always around, and the other children, when they came home from school, they would all be around him. And it was a lovely time. My mother was here, and together we... ..we... ..gave him whatever he might need.
5: And yet, in the last few days, the pressure levels on the oxygen cylinders went from two, three, four litres per minute, which would be enough for anybody who is needing oxygen badly, Um, with Peter up to five, six litres a minute and him needing to have the oxygen all the time and being in a considerable state of panic. If he couldn't have an immediate switch from one canister... To the next. He loved
11: to have um, yop and jelly babies, and in fact, that was all that he could eat, really. In fact, it was very difficult for him, really, because we had to take the oxygen mask slightly off him, push it to the side, in order to pop in a jelly baby or give him a little sip of yop, and and at this stage it really was just a question of sips and little bites of this and that.
5: It then got to the point where when we had to switch canisters, it was a critical matter whether we had it down to a fine art of five or six seconds or whether we couldn't get the uh, connector done easily, And there would be a panic major panic so we ended up with a huge industrial sized oxygen cylinder about five foot tall downstairs and one upstairs by his bed both of which ended up on seven eight liters per minute of a flow
11: he had the Christmas party that we that he wanted the day before he died and he in fact ate quite a few sweets that we've we, we got for him. In in another sense, the in the spiritual sense I suppose it was a lovely week for him in that he made his confirmation on the Tuesday before he died.
5: When we were at the um graveyard when Peter's coffin was lowered and Prayers were said, and then the farewell gestures, Von's mom, putting something, um, a rose down onto the coffin which she had been holding, which um, was on Peter's body um, here as he lay in the front room. I then felt that the miracles of somebody bringing... A child back to life that those miracles were not to be for peter um though they might be for for other people and that finally i would have to say goodbye um and even hearing myself saying the words now it seems uh, strange to know that his body is is in a graveyard and uh, A mile or two away, uh, and he is no longer a living part of the family who we will see in the morning or see later at night as we would normally.
6: And I suppose one of the best places to die in character is at home, among your own, in familiar surroundings. Now, that's very idealistic. The reality for some people is it's not where they want to die it's not medically possible for them to do that and it's not possible for their relatives with all the love and all the goodwill in the world to give them the kind of care they need. Now having said that, if a person can die at home, it's now made possible for the family because I suppose the worries families sometimes have are, you know, will daddy be in pain, will he have discomfort, will we be able to cope, and just to know that you have this tremendous resource, medical resource and human resource behind you. That at two o'clock in the morning you can, if you need, to pick up the phone and talk to someone or have somebody come out and treat your dad is tremendous for the heart. And I have heard people say that not only is it tremendous for their father or their mother, but it was marvellous for themselves that the time he spent with the relatives in the kitchen was equally as important as the time spent upstairs with the person who was dying and this is where home care can do a tremendous amount because you cannot just take a relative a patient out of a house out of a home out of a family and treat them as if they were related to no one and home care will tell you this they will say the unit of care is the patient and the family so essentially they are doing a very essential task which is they are enabling the loved ones to care for their own and at that level that is a tremendous level of caring
4: the freedom of being at home is the is the wonderful side of it that uh, that meals appear in a hospital at regular times and sometimes at times when when i wasn't able to able to eat and uh, the, that that meal was is often missed, but uh, at home I can I can eat what I like when I like and tell uh, my family what I what I like, and it will be available. And it's uh, I find that i that my appetite has improved. No one is improving uh, quite well since I came from out from hospital, but. Uh, I'm quite sure that that wouldn't have happened, in, if I had to remain in the in the environmental atmosphere of of, of a hospital, and uh, I wouldn't have any hesitation in saying that it's it's being at home that makes it life worth living.